This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Looking back through the Speaking of the Arts archives, I noticed that I don't chat to photographers that often, so I am delighted that this week the entire hour explores the works of two photographers, both of whom have shows in Columbia, one starting next week at Or Street Studios and the other ending at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery. And although the shows are entirely different in their presentation of their subject matter, one is accompanied by audio and the other recontextualizes existing photography and changes the narrative before being re-photographed, both exhibits chronicle profound experiences. The first act this evening explores the impact of COVID on professional and personal lives. And the second act looks at the experience of being a migrant and memories of home. This is a subject close to my heart, as of course I am a migrant. But because I am white, my experience is so very different from migrants who are black or brown. But we are the same. We left our home country and moved here We all bring with us different cultural heritages, new words and phrases, even me, with our shared mother tongue. Yet, where I am most often greeted with a question slash comment, I love your accent, where are you from? Others, less white, are not met with such excitement. But regardless of our skin tone, we are the same. Immigrants to this country with our own stories to tell. Act 1 Over the past two years, I have pondered often with artists from different arts genres that when they think about the arts, when do they think we'll be ready to tackle this period of history? When will we have enough distance from it for it to be a named historic era and one which audiences, viewers and readers will be ready to spend time with? Will it be 2025 or sometime in the 2030s or even the 2040s before we are ready to dive back into this time? But although we may want to wait before we analyse this time artistically, there are many artists who are doing the difficult work of documenting it as we live through it. Photographer David Lancaster is a physician and the medical director of Capital Region Medical Center's inpatient physical rehabilitation unit in Jefferson City. And as the Delta variant wave flooded our hospitals, he began to document the nurses, doctors, administrators and patients whose lives had been affected and changed by COVID. His ongoing photo essay is called Broken, and a show of this work opens at Orr Street Studios on the 4th of February. And I am so glad that he has been able to take time to be my guest on this week's show. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Dr. David Lancaster. Thank you so much. And um, I'm really very honored that you took the time out to interview me about this project, which to me is... um, probably the most personal project I've ever done. And uh, I just really want to get this, uh, this out there to the general public. Well, I feel like my first question, David, should be, how are you? Oh, I do pretty good. It's been, uh, it's been a stressful couple of weeks, I have to say, on many levels from work to domestic. 
<laughs> but it's been good. A stressful couple of years altogether. Yes. This is such a powerfully moving work of bearing witness. Would you describe for us this series of photo essays that are in Broken? This project basically consists of portraits of the nurses, doctors, medical assistants, and administrators, along with the patients. And what I did is I had them hold a word on a piece of paper of what this pandemic has meant to them, what the COVID has meant to them. And originally, I was just doing portraits. But as I was getting them set up to take their picture, they were telling me these stories. And I thought, you know, I'm a photographer, I just take pictures, but their stories, you can get a an emotion and a feeling from the photograph of them. But I, I really wanted to record their stories and to have people hear them. And I came up with this idea when I was at a restaurant trying to look at the menu and they're all QR codes now. And I thought, you know, if I can use a QR code, have their audio so that when you look at the portrait, you scan the QR code in the caption and you can hear their stories. And I felt we have been hearing so much about coronavirus in the media, some of it uh, intentional misinformation, some of it just plain misinformation, and others um, kind of tell the story, but you never really know what's going on until you really hear it from the people who are experiencing it. So I started in the ICU at first, and initially I was met with a little bit of skepticism of, who are you and what are you doing down mm -hmm. here with the camera? As the nurses started to warm up, they became very appreciative that uh, I was recording their stories and trying to get it out to the general public to hear. Um, so I started in the ICU. I took several portraits of the uh, nurses and the doctors. I moved to the emergency room, did the same there, went to the COVID floor, started with the nurses on that unit. And then on my rehab unit, I was starting to see the post-COVID patients. Now, they would come to me after their acute phase, after being maybe on the ventilator for weeks or a month, and they're very debilitated or they have suffered strokes. They would come to my unit and they would work with physical, occupational, and speech therapists, and we try to get them stronger and functional so they can return back to society. And I started asking some of my patients, and they were receptive. So I took their portraits, got their stories, and then I thought, well, what about the administrators? Because they're at a whole different level of dealing with this pandemic and so I got some of the uh, vice presidents of uh, different departments, along with the president of the hospital, and I thought their stories were very unique and um, very telling of helping to paint a really rounded picture of how this pandemic is affecting society. You opted to photograph the series in black and white. Talk to me about that decision. So I go back and forth. Um, I started in color, originally in photography, but there's something about black and white. It, to me, cuts through uh, extra information that I just don't think that can be distracting. Mm -hmm. And so for black and white, you take out that distraction, you can really 
enhance the contrast. And, you know, when you look at these portraits, you look at the eyes and the eyes tell so much. And I think it's more impactful in black and white. I agree. And I think also it's very impactful that you've chosen to just do audio and not do videography. Because I find in the same way that black and white, I think, is more intimate. I think audio by itself is more intimate than videography. Was that why you chose just to do audio? I would like to say yes. <laughs> uh, but I have no idea how to do videography. And that, that is beyond my scope. I know photography. And we all love a story. And I, and I, I guess... You know, I spend a lot of my time in the car. I have to commute about an hour and 10 minutes a day. So I'm either on the radio, listening to podcasts, listening to, I call, I still call them books on tape, but audible books. And so I'm a very audio visual, but combining them into a movie, that's beyond my, my uh, scope. So talk to me about the decision to retire a word once someone had used it. So in all the photographs, each person is holding up a white piece of card on which they have written a word, which for them defines, for them, their experience. And once a word has been used, you take it out of the lexicon. No one else is allowed to use it. Talk to me about that decision and, and whether without this restriction, there were certain words that were more front of mind than others. Yeah, there were a couple words. Um, so I decided to do it because this is very personal. And they're telling me, they're pouring their heart out to me. And in some of these interviews, both the subject and myself are crying during and after the interview because they're so deep. And I felt that that's their story. That's their word. And they own it. Um Some of the words, it was with the patients. A lot of them wanted to use the word blessed. And they would just would have to come up with a different word. Um, so that was probably the most common one. But as far as the nurses, I didn't get any overlap because there were so many, there's so many ways to describe what people are going through. I'm somewhat surprised that nobody has, I mean, thus far at least, because it's an ongoing project, used the word angry. There are words like tired, overwhelmed, persevere, determined, sad, defining, despair, humanity. But I think the nearest we get to anger is frustrated. Yeah. And I know from listening to radio interviews with medical staff that anger is certainly an emotion that people are battling. Why do you think it hasn't come up in your project so far? That's a really good question. And quite honestly, I get angry. I really do of what's going on. I think anger takes it to another depth that somebody in medicine, I don't think we, we are comfortable with that word yet. Mm. If this keeps going on, we might. But at this point, I just don't think anybody I interviewed would be comfortable using that word, even though... A lot of us feel that way, especially when we see, well, in the uh, our hospital currently, pretty much everybody on the ventilator is unvaccinated. As of last week, we only had two so far that were vaccinated on the ventilator. And those patients had so many other comorbid conditions. So they were really sick going into the pandemic. 
But the vaccine has helped tremendously of keeping people out of a critical state. And when you see when you see so many people taking up space in the hospital, I mean, there was a point over half of our population was COVID. It's frustrating. I do get angry because some of this, a lot of this could be prevented. And what happens when the hospital is full of COVID patients? And I could speak personally, I I had a patient on my unit with a significant brain tumor I couldn't get them to a higher level of care. And our hospital was full, MU was full, Barnes was full, and it took almost a week to get that patient off my unit uh, into the appropriate level of care. And a lot of this can be prevented if we all in society take the responsibility of A, wearing a mask, and B, just getting vaccinated. Indeed. I want to play a couple of clips from the recordings you made. They are all heart-wrenching, all 24 of them, but I'm going to play a clip from two. One is from an ICU nurse who is holding up a sign that says anguish, and the second from a patient who recovered from COVID after a period of intubation, but whose husband did not survive, and her word is broken. Let's take a listen. consider myself a very strong nurse. I have been through a lot in all the years that I have cared for people. I've taken care of taking care of COVID patients since the very beginning. And I've mostly seen them all die. And every body bag, every time I've zipped somebody up, I have truly zipped a part of me away as well. Um, I don't think people take us seriously. I don't think people understand what we've seen and what we go through. When you try your very hardest to save a patient's life and you have them flipped onto their stomach just to see if they would oxygenate a little bit better and then When it comes the time where they're not doing better and you finally are able to flip them over, they don't even look like themselves. And I don't know what's worse to see the patient's face or to see the family member that can't recognize their patient's face. I have both scarred into my mind. I don't know if really good ICU nurses can do it much longer. I don't know if we can keep going at the rate we're going. Um, COVID destroys everything. It has destroyed my soul. I don't know if I will recover from it being in nursing. I know most of all my patients have not recovered from COVID (laughs) and I think I'm right there with them. I might be alive and working with them, but I will never be the same.
just been a battle. And I'm sorry I'm getting upset, but I lost my husband and I'm really struggling. So that's why I feel so broken. My whole life is going to change now because of COVID. And I'm going home in two days and I have to go home without him. And, you know, he passed away because of COVID. And so now my whole life is going to be different. We were married August 13th. We would have been married 38 years. And so I've been with him most of my life. When when you listen back to some of these stories, you say that at the time that you're recording them, that often you and the person you're interviewing are in tears. When you listen back later, do those same emotions well up? Oh, they do. They really do. Even thinking about it sometimes. Um, I see them after they've been completely altered, uh, whether it be a stroke, whether it be death, loss of function. And many of these patients will never be the same again. Mm. And so, I, you know, I'm a deeply emotional person. Uh, I kind of joke with my wife. She likes to watch the uh, movies, uh, all of the superhero movies, and I like the chick flicks. So, <laughs> uh, and I think that comes... It's a way that I can express those emotions with my art, which is photography. And so, yes, I when I when I do hear these stories again or even think about them, uh, it affects me. It really does. Are there any particular stories that for you have a special resonance or maybe surprised you in some way? The very first interview I did was an ICU nurse, and she chose the word numb. And... It is a way for some of us to help protect protect ourselves with what we are seeing. And you do become numb sometimes to other people's anguish and and pain. Because otherwise, when you take on so much of it, it becomes overwhelming. And for her talking about holding a patient who is dying, their hand, and trying to talk to them, and she says something to the effect of their spouse couldn't be there. And as they die, um, she just didn't feel right holding their hand. It was their spouse that really should have been there at the last moments. And for her to get through this, she's become numb to it. And uh, that's that's resonated. You don't include yourself in this project. And I'm curious what your word would be and why you have chosen not to include yourself yet. Maybe you are going to. Yes, <laughs> I did. I, I, took the, I took a photo, and it took me such a long time to figure out the word. I chose reality, and I have not recorded my story yet because I'm, I'm so self-conscious. <laughs> um, Give us a practice run. <laughs> oh, my God. Reality. You put me on the spot. I really can't. But what I do want to talk about with that word is... What I've seen is there are two alternate universes, and one of the the nurses I interviewed, 
she tells me of a story where she held the hands of two patients during a shift that passed away. And then she went home and she has friends and family who tell her that this is a hoax and it's not real. Mm-hmm. And that really made me think about reality because there were people in this alternate universe who once the virus gets them, if it ever does, they come to grips with the true reality of this. And even during that period, there are some people that will deny it. They'll be in the ICU and deny that they even have the COVID. Um, It's amazing how powerful delusion is. Maybe that's a word I could have chose too, delusion. Mm -hmm. But uh, I see the reality of their actions or lack thereof. Have you thought about including somebody whose word would be denial? Um, I would love it, but nobody's chosen that word yet. Hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I would. Have you asked the people who might say that, though, or are you avoiding them <laughs> to some degree? You know, I have a couple in my unit right now that I've have been thinking about asking them because uh, – I, I didn't come out and ask if they're anti-vaxxers, but they're unvaccinated. So I, I can make the assumption. Um, but I, I might. Uh, somebody might uh, choose that word. And it is definitely in I, – I have a lot of words written out, and they can go through those words and choose what they want or write their own. So they do see it. And I think most of the patients who have made it through the ICU have this feeling of – of uh, well, being blessed or lucky, you know. I think miracle was one of the words, wasn't it, that was chosen? Miracle was definitely one, yeah. Now, I do want to say those who I, the patients I have photographed, I can't say if they're vaccinated or not, and some were, because I, I, I don't want to put that assumption out there hmm. with the current ones that I have photographed. I'm just talking about the patients in general. And, and I'm pretty selective of who I ask to, because you get a sense if somebody would be receptive or not of being photographed. I want to ask you about the music. I said that you have a chance to brag a little about your son, Leo, who is the composer behind the beautifully solemn and evocative opening and closing segments. Tell me about Leo's contribution to these essays. You know, Leo... Um, and he's my son, so I, I will brag. I'm a, I'm a bit biased, but he, he is brilliant. When I was younger, my dream was to have a couple Grammys by now. And I was in a band, and I played a lot until my early 20s. My son musically surpassed me probably by the age of 13. He really is very talented, and I wanted to have him included because I wanted it for a couple reasons. A, I wanted to work with my son. B, I wanted to guide him through how to focus and do a project for somebody else, a client, if he chooses to pursue the arts as a career. And so I felt this was a good training ground for him. And he was very intimidated at first to come up with a a song. And it took me about a week to convince him that he can do it. And he went to the uh, keyboard and within five minutes, he really had a, a great soundscape. He also helped me edit down these videos because he knows how to use the program 
to do it and and I don't. And we would sit together and I would say, I want this, I don't want this. And he was good at taking out the ums and the ahs and getting maybe a 10-minute story to two to three minutes and still convey the meaning that the person was trying to say. And after coaching him on several, I let him go to do the rest on his own. And he did a really fantastic job. What brief did you give him musically? I wanted him to write something that was solemn. It needed to not have very sharp notes so that would so that would not distract from the person speaking. It had to be kind of a background, even tone. And he was very good about timing the music with the way the words come on the screen and the way when the people are talking. And then him and I came up with the idea. If you listen to the very end, it's scratchy. Mm. And... Those of us who remember vinyl, and he's really into vinyl records, that's the end of the record. And that's what he used. It's the end of the story, or it's the end of life, or it's the end of life as we know it. Several of the works in the show have also been accepted into shows around the country, which are exploring Mm -hmm. various components of art in the time of corona. And I can't help but think that the people who view your works and seek out your shows or website of people who already have empathy for the medical profession, who do believe in the science of vaccination, and that the people who need to see your works are too locked into their silos of mistrust and false information. How can your work reach those people? You know, that's what I'm really trying to figure out right now. I have gotten it into a few galleries But even that's difficult because the galleries, they're looking for sellable work. And this is not a sellable piece of art. I'm thinking about uh, maybe the Historical Society here in Columbia, because I think this is also a timepiece that will resonate 50 years from now. Mm. I'm looking at those avenues, and I am definitely open to suggestions to try to get the word out. I'm going to contact the medical associations. Maybe they can help. But again, it really needs to get out to the general public. And, and that is a, that's a tough one that I'm, I'm currently trying to piece together of how to do it. Before we close, David, I want to have you touch briefly on another ongoing project you have called Freedom of Speech. Tell us a little bit about that collection of photography. Yeah, this, uh, it was the feelings that started uh, in 2016 during that election. And I really felt... Uh, that we were experiencing, and I, we, we still are, but it came to a head, uh, a religious war. And what I mean by that, we have what I call modern mythology versus reality and science. And I felt that being forced to teach or not teach certain subjects like evolution, we were being stifled. And so look really closely at the piece of paper in people's mouths, and you might figure out where the pages are coming from. So they are a series of photographs of portraits of people who have in their mouth a a wadded up ball of paper. Yes. Just to explain what it looks like. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so you're saying we should zoom in on those bits of paper. Yeah. 
it'll give you some clues. <laughs> and did you allow the subject of the photograph to choose the piece of paper? Yes. Yeah, any, any, any page they wanted. And what I include in, in the title is what they do, what their profession is. So that's one piece. And right now, this is an, this is an online-only display. Has it, has it got a life outside of the internet? Is there going to be a show somewhere? I had it, uh, a few pieces accepted. Uh, one was to a contemporary art gallery in New Jersey and another online. I, I was pushing that and then Broken came about and I put more of my energy in Broken. So there, there are really two projects that I'm working on, but Broken just took the lead right now. I have a third that I, I have one photo so far and I'm calling it Denied It. And it's healthcare workers with rope around their hands, basically handcuffed uh, as they're trying to do their jobs. And what I'm exploring there is how insurance companies and these uh, for-profit companies are making the medical decisions of those in uh, medicine. So that's another project that hopefully will come to light soon. When does Broken end? I mean, you have 24 photo essays and you say it's an ongoing project and it seems like we're going to need to bear witness for the foreseeable future. Do you have an end point for Broken? I think it's probably going to end in about six months. I, I've got a few more people I want to interview and I'm open to anybody else uh, who would be interested. They can go to my website and uh, contact me. I, uh, you know, I, I have an attention span at last. <laughs> it's not very long, so I kind of jump from one project to another. But I, I do think it has a couple more months left, and then I'll, I'll wind it down. I hope that's because you think that the pandemic is going to wind down in a couple of months. Oh, God, I wish. I really do. It could. It really could if everybody just was responsible. It would. Well, you can see David Lancaster's powerful collection of photographs and hear the audio stories that bear witness to the lives affected by COVID on his website at davidlancasterphotography.com. And you can see the works in person at Orr Street Studios through February the 26th. The show has its official opening on First Friday on the 4th of February, if First Friday happens, of course, we never quite know at this point in time, um, but they will be up through the end of February. All Street Studios opening hours are 12 till 4 from Thursday through Sunday, except on First Friday when they are open till 9pm. David, thank you so much for putting together this era-defining set of photo essays and for making time to chat with us today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. We live in a time when more people than at any time in human history are on the move, whether through choice or forced migration as travellers or refugees. Swaths of people are crossing borders and oceans and making homes away from the land and culture into which they were born. And although we are all so similar, understanding and empathy across cultures is an endless challenge, especially for the migrant. And it is both the migrant experience along with memory and family which lie at the heart of photographer Priya Suresh Kambli's many bodies of work and through which she hopes we can realise that our stories and our humanity serve to bind us rather than divide us. 
Priya is the Professor of Art, Photography and Foundations at Truman State University, and her work has been the subject of solo shows and group exhibitions across the country. She was the 2021 recipient of the Missouri Arts Council's Missouri Arts Award for Individual Artist, and Priya is the first official artist sponsored by the Eric Sweet Memorial Exhibition and Lecture Series Fund. And her body of work, entitled Buttons for Eyes, is on display at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery on Columbia's University of Missouri campus through January the 30th. And I am so delighted that this evening she is here to talk about her work, along with Catherine Armbrust, wife of the late Eric Sweet and the director of the Bingham Gallery. Good evening, Priya and Catherine. Good evening. Good evening. Priya, I love that the title of your show, Buttons for Eyes, comes from a question your mother used to ask you. As my mother was fond of colourful turns of phrases, my favourite being that if something wasn't going well, she'd say, well, it's better than a slap in the face with a wet kipper. (laughs) So (laughs) tell me about this phrase and why you chose it for your show. It's a phrase that's stuck with me, you know, when I was little and she would say, go find your shoes or whatever, like something really simple that would be right in front of my face. And I would just be like, I don't know where it is. And I think my answers were not necessarily coming from not being able to find them, but wanting her to be part of the looking, right? And so I was super attached to her and I wanted her to be with me everywhere, do everything with me, right? And so I think some of her anxiety came from like a parental fear, like how is this child going to survive without (laughs) me sort of thing, you know? And so I really was like fascinated by that question because even when I was little, I knew it had a little pinch to it. And the pinch was not necessarily catered towards me, but it was also catered towards her a little bit. There were worries for both of us, her worry for me and her worry about her as a parent, how independent she was making me. And so I found that question really fascinating and that pinching in both ways really fascinating that it hurt both of us to kind of hear her say that in a way and I was really thinking about living here in the rural midwest during this Trump era and sort of feeling these pinches from everywhere you know and thinking about her asking me that question and so when I started making this work about this immigrant in this Trump landscape, because we're predominantly that, and thinking about sort of white suprematism that's in play in the United States at this point, and feeling those sort of pinches as an immigrant, and trying to figure out how to tell a tale that was a very personal, but very universal, and at the same time, to make it understood as something that needed to be shared because those pinches hurt. I don't know if that made sense, but that's what I was thinking. (laughs) I mean, the work is very personal. It doesn't obviously speak to Trumpism. It's really a look back on your own life. Yeah, it doesn't speak to Trumpism directly. It speaks to Trumpism in the sense of the work is not made in a vacuum. The work is made 
you know, looking back at my sort of coming to America, but also about my life being lived here, right? And so I am a parent. Um, my husband is Caucasian. I have two children that are mixed race. So it also comes from like looking at them and thinking about them. So the word doesn't have very overt political things in it, but it's embedded in the parenting, in the parenting in the now of the parenting. Catherine, this show is the first in the Eric Sweet Memorial Series. You knew Eric better than anybody. (laughs) What would he have loved about this show? I think that, first of all, he would have loved the poetry that Priya has in the work itself. The, The photographs sit in this place between being a photograph, but also being like a documentation of an object. It feels like you can reach into the photograph and really like feel, um, feel what you're seeing. The texture is so like vivid and tangible in there. And I think that he would really love the interplay between the artificiality or documentation of memory and the the kind of overlaying of lights and darks and patterns that Priya has, because really it ignites your senses to look at this work. It's like you can smell it, you can almost touch it. Um, And so I think that, yeah, that that poetry would be something that he would fall in love with. Priya, take us back to you at 18. Your parents had both died a couple of years earlier, and you decided to pack your life into a single suitcase and pursue your education in America, leaving your sister and the rest of your family behind in India. What compelled you to come here in 1993? So I had come to the United States multiple times, first time with my mother and my sister. And the reason we came is because my aunt, my mother's younger sister, is based in the United States. And the first time we came to see them. And um, and the next time I came back with my sister, my parents had died by then. And we had come back because my aunt had brought us back to stay with her for the summer. And then the third time I came back with my sister again. And this time she came because I was starting the university here and she had come with me to say goodbye, basically. And I think I really have been thinking about sort of my life in the United States. And I think the tragedy and sort of the trauma of the tragedy created like really, really different lives than we had ever imagined for ourselves. Right. And at that time, by the time I was 18 and coming here, she was 20. My sister was 20 and she had figured out a life for herself in Mumbai and was happy to stay there. In fact, she actually still lives two, two, three buildings down from where my grandparents used to live and all my aunt and uncles live, you know? So she's still in that little specific space um, that we grew up in and we knew. But for me, I think there was no place for me. I felt I had, I needed some other space to be in where I could be my own self, my own identity, which I really didn't even know what that was. And I think I I was misplaced while, and displaced in that place in Mumbai, India, while she was anchored in it. My sister was anchored in it and found her footing in it. And so it made a pretty simple decision at age 18 to say, yes, I will come here to the United States because we both were given the choice to come here. 
And for her, it was a very easy decision to say, no, I will stay. When you when you look back on those early days, did you think of yourself as a migrant or a visitor? And when did that change? I think when I first came, I think I was just trying to create some sort of life that felt productive. So I don't even know what I thought about myself, you know, but there were lots of sort of new things in life. I came to art not because I knew what being an artist meant or I knew what being part of an art community meant. I had never done art in my entire life. When I came to the United States, I figured I had a new life. And so in the new life, I should have something that wouldn't have ever existed in the life previous to that. So I chose the art path not based on some serious decision or knowing, I chose it because it felt very unknown to me. And luckily, that decision turned out to be the best decision I made. I think one of the things that I did realize sort of really early on was not quite finding my place in the classroom in the art world. So I came to Louisiana to go to school And I was in a world, in an art world, that was very unfamiliar to me. I was in a country that was very unfamiliar to me. And um, it was easy in America to find my place in a way because I I could figure out how to assimilate. I've been there before. But in the art world, it was really hard. There was no representation of me or my kind in the art world at that point that I was seeing. And so I felt really displaced actually in the classroom, not seeing artwork that spoke to me, but really just seeing predominantly Western work, work made by white males, and trying to figure out how do I now create something for myself in this space. And how did you figure it out? It took me a long time. It took me a long time to figure that out. This is pre-social media age. Um, I did figure that out in undergrad. It took me a while in grad school to realize the conversations I wanted to have, which were about migrant narratives. But again, I didn't quite have anything reflected back at me that helped. I actually figured this out while I was at a residency up in Woodstock, New York, um, and it was a residency for artists of color. And I'd come down to New York uh, City from Woodstock to see the show in a gallery. It doesn't exist anymore. It was called CPI and the Alkazi Collection. And what was interesting about the show that was in that space when I came down to see it was hand-painted studio portraits from India. And so they were like these tiny little photographs that had been taken in Indian studios and hand-painted. And they were hanging in this pristine gallery space up in New York City. And I felt immediately at home seeing those photographs. And the reason were because the photographs that I was seeing on the walls were very similar to the photographs that were in the suitcase that I brought with me when I came to the United States. And those photographs were of my family. And so I instantly stood in that gallery and knew what this work was about. And I knew that what I had in my suitcase reflected this and that in some ways I was looking at something that I understood instantly and I had to figure out 
how to make work now with what I had in my suitcase and just go for it. Like, I didn't know what it meant to produce work like that, but I just knew that I had something with me already, these artifacts, and these artifacts would be the jumping off point for whatever body of work I created. And it took me three years from then to do that, actually. <laughs> so it took a long time. <laughs> so the photographs in your suitcase that you brought with you are taken by your father. Tell us a little bit about how you use those photographs and how you recontextualize them using additional elements. So I'm quite aware that the photographs that I'm using, even though that I claim them to be mine because they are actually mine, they're my possession, but I'm not the photographer who took them. So in that case, they become appropriated images. And so I knew in order to claim them in a visual space as mine, I had to do something with them where my narrative was in play and not necessarily the narrative of the original image maker. And so in order to kind of shift that narrative so that my conversations were in play, I started obscuring information in them and I started obscuring information so that I could pinpoint the viewer in certain directions in the photograph. I would literally walk them through the photograph by making them look here first, there first, there, you know, kind of create a little passageway for them. And in doing the obscuring, I realized what the materials that I was drawn to were materials that were very homely, that were very domesticated, that were grounded in the kitchen. The kitchen was a space. Uh, My mom was a homemaker. And so the kitchen was always the space of gathering for us. And so when I started to collect materials to use, I immediately went to the kitchen and gathered whatever I could find there. And then I use um, stencils that have patterns in them, and I sift flour through those patterned stencils to create these spaces. And then you re-photograph them. So that, that final photograph that we see is your photography, but the substrat, in effect, is your father's photography. Right. And it's not always my father's photographies. There were other images. So it was predominantly my father's photographs that he had created of us, but I also had studio portraiture of my family that were shot by whoever in um, whichever studios in India, for whatever reason, we were very good about going and taking, getting photographs of us taken. So I had multiple sort of sources within that archive. And for Buttons for Eyes, I'm really looking at my father's predominantly but there are other sources in play in the archive. Priya, I want to ask you about a memory you have of seeing one of your father's photographs altered by your mother, pierced by your mother, and how that memory is at the core of so much of your work. Tell us about that. So one of the things that when I talk about my father being the image maker in the family, I always had thought photography was something that I would never pursue because I always thought photography was a way, it was a punishment because he was so, he was shooting on chrome. So it had to be so precise. So every time he made an image, his perfection was so annoying, right? Like everything, we had to stand a certain way. The light had to be right. So nothing happened quickly. It took a long time to make an image. So I always thought being being photographed by my father was my punishment. 
And so photography had no appeal whatsoever in that kind of context. But he was also shooting in Chrome. And for whatever reason, they were being processed in the United States, these images, and being sent back to us. So you can kind of understand there was the monetary value attached to this artifact. They were expensive. And I remember seeing my mother cut her face out of this photograph and just slide it back into the family album. And I just remember thinking I was four or five years old and I was worried that she was going to get into trouble, you know, <laughs> like she had done something mischievous, right? And that somebody or someone would say something. So I wasn't necessarily worried for the photograph. I was worried for her that in some way she would be reprimanded. And so... That kind of stayed with me. But as an adult, when I'm looking at these photographs, I was fascinated by the way she cut into them. She didn't cut into them with scissors coming from the edge. She literally pierced where her face was and just cut out just her face so she doesn't impinge any other information, which is us besides her. She just impinges her own face and literally takes it out. And so I was fascinated by sort of her mark making, which was so brutal on the photograph and really amazed by what it did to a photograph. It no longer was this mundane family photograph. It became something else. And I was kind of fascinated how that mark altered the read of a really mundane photograph and changed it dramatically. Why do you think she did that? Did you ever have a chance to ask her? No, um, it's so funny. I'm reading this beautiful poetry book called Dear Memory. And I, I'm going to paraphrase this, but she writes, why do we always have questions that seemed unimportant at that time? Why do we always have them after somebody has died? You know, and at that time, I guess those questions weren't important to me. But now they're really important and I don't have an answer to them. Could you make a guess? I can't. Most of the time, people instantly go for vanity. And my mother was very, very beautiful. And, um, and she did this for a specific time period in her life. So it wasn't that she did this to all photographs and randomly. She did it for a specific amount of time to a specific thing. So I think there was some sort of crisis at the, in that time period. I'm just not aware what that crisis was. Catherine, tell me about a work in the show that speaks to you. <laughs> you know, I have just been listening to Priya talk. The more I talk, the more I connect with her work, just myself. And then the more I think about Eric's work and actually how much it connects to Eric's work, too, before he passed away. So I'm loving hearing all of this. Thank you, Priya. Most of the work or the work that I am struck by, which is a lot, and it's funny, I've been telling people this because as we were installing it, one of my assistants said, why don't we just have this work in here all the time? <laughs> like we were sitting there eating lunch together, just looking at it. We were both so struck. And I was like, I don't know, Jay, I wish we I wish we did. Right. Like we just wanted to look at it always. The stenciling I love because I love pattern, right? And that relates also back to textiles a lot to me. So when she's stenciling or using some sort of pattern to obfuscate some of the information below, I really like that because not only do you get a mystery, which I love mystery, you get these gorgeous patterns. And that's with the stenciling, especially that's when you also get that, um, that texture, 
right? And I can tell that it's related to food. <laughs> so so that also that's also close to my heart too. But the ones I was talking about earlier as well, like where you could smell because um, Pri's using turmeric in quite a few of them. And I love turmeric for a lot of reasons, for food, for healing, um, the smell, the color. And so I really love the kind of sensuality of these like piles of spices that are happening in a lot of the areas. Um, and then the other ones that I really love a lot are, I don't know how she did it, Priya. Somebody's going to be asking you about that at your talk, but where you've get, you get these prisms of light that are striping across some of the figures mm-hmm. in the original photos. And there's these wonderful shadows that happen along with the prisms of light. And those moments are just so lovely to me. So Priya, how do you get those prisms of light? <laughs> it's a funny story. So when I turned 40 years old, I'm 46 now, I told my husband I wanted a prism for my birthday. I had this vision in my head about how I was going to use it in my work. And then he got me a prism, like he really researched it and got me this prism. And then I used it. And it did nothing. It did absolutely nothing, which is so funny because if you think about a prism, all it has to do is light for it to travel through it. <laughs> but I had like this idea in my head and absolutely was a bust. And I remember just thinking, wow, like that didn't work. And <laughs> I put it away. And like two years later, for whatever reason, I was playing. Um, I was in a sabbatical and I was playing. I had time to kind of really just allow things to happen and I pulled it out again and I I started playing with it and like magic it did exactly what I wanted it to do which is the cast light and I'm doing all kinds of insanities with it I'm letting light come through a prism and when it hits the photograph I have another color on some other side and I Somehow, I don't know how this works in terms of like light chemistry, physics, nothing. I understand nothing of it. Um, I just know the visual effects. I run it through another color and then it bounces back. And when it becomes a shadow, it's a negative of the color that I'm running it through. So it's all kinds of insanities that I have no idea how (laughs) they work. But once I figured out that I could do that, I'm playing with it to to get what I had in my mind when I asked Aaron to buy me a prism for my 40th birthday. It just took me two years to, to make it work. <laughs> Good job being patient. <laughs> yeah, I feel like when I'm making work, I have, you know, it sits in my head for a long time before it actually comes tumbling out. And I think in a way, it's because I need to kind of resolve so many things in my mind before I can actually make that physicality happen. And I have to think about it a lot before that happens. Because once it happens and I make the work, it's done. And in some ways, then I have to let go of it. But when it sits in my head and I can just meditate and think about it, I have a longer time with that work. I want to touch back again on the on the migrants question and the anti-immigrant sentiments and lack of empathy for the migrant that we see so prevalently these days. And I always wonder with much of art that is created with a, a social message, how it can affect change, given that it is usually viewed and experienced by the people who already have empathy. 
Do you feel like your work is making a difference where it needs to, that the people that need to hear the message are hearing it and seeing it? I'm not sure. The more I do this, the more unsure I become, right? (laughs) The work is from a personal point of view. I'm just hoping that my storytelling, my sharing allows me to be vulnerable and that vulnerability is seen and somebody else is vulnerable in that space with me and with the work. But I'm I'm not an activist in that sense. You know, I don't think of my work as generating activism. It just doesn't generate any sort of laws that change how a migrant experience is seen or better or any of that. And and yeah, no, the hope always is that it provokes some kind of empathy or something, but I don't know if it actually does or not, right? Um I think I'm I'm just hoping that in some ways that it strikes you in some sort of way that it sticks with you, even if it doesn't generate empathy at that point, that it sticks with you and hopefully rubs you in some ways and makes you kind of engage in certain things and really look at things carefully, makes you want to look at things carefully. And maybe that's the biggest jump it, it will ever achieve in a person. Yeah, this is a question I struggle with so much. And I could blather on, but I don't know if I'll make sense because it's something that it's been like irking me for so long and wanting that to for me to be able to say, yes, it does. Of course it does. But I am not sure if it does. Well, hopefully it will do. You can see Priya Campbell's Buttons for Eyes collection in person at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery through January the 30th. And you can also view this work and her other collections on her website at priyacambly.com, which is spelled P-R-I-Y-A. K-A-M-B-L-I dot com. And if you would like to make a donation to the Eric Sweet Memorial Exhibition and Lecture Series Fund, go to mizzougivedirect.missouri.edu and enter Eric's name in the search bar. Priya Campbell and Catherine Armbrust, thank you so much for sharing Buttons for Eyes with us and Priya, your story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, photographer and medical doctor, David Lancaster, photographer and professor, Priya Campbell and gallery director Catherine Armbrust. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!